Thanks for tuning in to the Leadership Lowdown. You found the Michigan Business Network, and I'm Vic Verschereau here on the Leadership Lowdown with someone who I have had uh, a long-time uh, relationship with and finally have booked him for the show, and I'm just so glad to have him here. His name is Captain Paul Wren, U.S. Navy retired, and I have to tell you, Paul, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Well, I'm glad to be here, and, and uh, thanks for inviting me, Vic. Yeah, well, um, I, I want—I think I need to set up the story a little bit be, for our for our audience because Paul uh, Wren, in a, in a, a number of years ago, I had him in as a speaker, and we used to hire speakers, all kinds of pricing, all kinds of places from national platforms and everything else. And Paul, I want you to know, you are my favorite speaker of all time um, in terms of people that we hire to come in and talk to our group, and it's because of the extraordinary um, relationship uh, that you have when you're on stage with people. You're relatable and you're real. And I'm just so glad that uh, uh, we met all those years ago and so glad you regaled me with so many um, impressive stories. And I, I, you and I were talking before the show, it's hard to figure out what we want to do and try to fit this all into our format here. But Paul, why don't you take me back and uh, in thirty seconds, give me your life. No, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to take us back, uh, tell us about what you're currently doing and kind of fill in the blanks about uh, what the uh, uh, highlights of your lifelong career have looked like. Well, thanks, Rick. You're very kind, and uh, I can tell you that right now I'm one of those people that's uh, retired from his second career and uh, enjoying what I'm doing, which is. Uh, Working uh, on the environment with the Save the Bay Foundation, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, also working with underprivileged people in Washington, D.C., and trying to um, help um, single mothers and uh, people that are you know, at the poverty line and try to mm. resurrect their lives and, and move them forward into schools and, and a better life. Yeah. And uh, I also um, have participated with an organization called the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, which has provided support and supplies and, and medical stuff to people in Syria, to Aleppo and other places that are in really dire situations and uh, do everything we can to ease that problem. Um, so um, I, uh, that's what I do now. Uh, prior to that, I spent 30 years, as you know, in the Navy and uh, had a lot of various uh, exciting experiences, and that yeah. was rather interesting. And then 14 years as an international consultant with a consulting firm of Whitney, Bradley & Brown, where I was a vice president in charge of uh, management consulting and also special operations that uh, took us all over the world to do things for um, our, our government, our country, uh, and other organizations that the government wanted us to work for, and also major business enterprises and small business enterprises in the United States. So a very wide spectrum of stuff. Well, Paul, I've, I've honestly have met a lot of people in my life, and, I've, and I don't know if I've ever met anyone probably as well-traveled as you. Have you ever counted up the number of countries that you've been in in your career? Uh, <laughs> no, I haven't. But yesterday, during a physical therapy session for a, a rather injured arm I have, I was asked if there were any continents on the face of the earth I hadn't been to, and I said, "Yeah, Australia," and that's uh, <laughs> that's that's pretty much it. <laughs> I haven't been in every country in Africa, but I've been in a heck of a lot of them. And yeah, Europe covered the spectrum and everything. So, and I served three years in Canada and um, have been all over the Southeast Asia and Asia itself and in China. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been an it's been an intriguing adventure, and it certainly opened your eyes to the different cultures and the different thought processes that everybody has. Yeah. And that and that really changes your mind 
your mindset when you start thinking about how you want to do things, your your beliefs in leadership, and uh, how you interact with other people with regard to their cultures and and their beliefs to right. be effective. Well, and I think that that's really the, the the what's interesting to me is as you see the more more and more of the world, and I by no means I've been in only twenty countries, but I can tell you that that in in uh, in terms of looking at cultures and, and understanding cultures, the more you travel, the more you see the, the 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 greater appreciation you have for how people can view the world differently because they're living in a different environment, they've been brought up in different uh, realities and their government's different. So um, it's just, uh, it's just a, a wild winding path that kind of um, uh, we get a chance to, to visit on. When you, when you think about you know, what inspired you to, to uh, come um, in terms of direction in your life, um, I'm running up against our break, but I, is, there, is there a quintessential moment we can talk about in the next segment that, that is uh, this is really what was striking to me uh, in my life and kind of kept me, kept me focused? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to break that down really quickly. And that was, uh, I had very good parents who really uh, uh, constantly pushed ethics and uh, integrity and standing up for principles. And my father was a person who said, success, you have to spell it out. You have to tell the people that work for you. You have to tell the people around you and you have to tell yourself, what is success? What does mm-hmm. that mean for you? So if we want to get into the next segment, I, I would simply say, then when you start out down the road, and there's another person in my life who really <laughs> kind of was the bookmark on this, know what you want to achieve and, mm. and establish it. And if you don't, if you're just you know just tumbling down the road trying to trying to just uh, do a job and you don't really know where you want to go, that's going to be difficult for you. Yeah. I think everybody who's ever been successful has laid out a path and said, "What does success mean to me?" That doesn't mean it won't change, but right. if you don't have that laid out and clearly stated in your mind about what you're trying to achieve, it's really hard to get to the um, to the end game and be successful. Well, Paul, we're so glad you're here to help us with that. I think we're going to pick up your pens and get ready to take some notes because Paul Rin's in the house right here on the Leadership Lowdown. This is the Michigan Business Network. I'm Vic Bershero. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Chris Holman, and as past chair of the National Small Business Association and a small business owner myself, I understand when you run a business, you rely heavily on your computer network. Now, you cannot afford lost data, lost customer information, and that's why you should trust your technology needs to ASK. Contact ASK at 877-ASK-4ASK for a free audit and analysis of your technology needs. That's 877-ASK-4ASK. Or find them on the internet at www.justask.net. ASK, taking the hassle out of technology so that you can run your business. You found the Michigan Business Network. This is the Leadership Lowdown with Vic Versero and the amazing, impressive Captain Paul Wren, U.S. Navy retired. And, of course, he's a, he's a speaker and an author and has done a great deal of uh, uh, 
pretty impressive business uh, consulting around the world. It's just so great to have you in the house. And Paul, before I forget to say to say it, thank you for your service to our country. Uh, you have made a difference, uh, I think, when the difference matters the most. So you've led young men and women um, in combat situations and different uh, variety of examples of uh, heroism and, and incredible things that you've done in your life. And uh, there are people that are here today um, and that have you to thank for their gift of life uh, because of what you've done. So uh, I, I want to sincerely say thank you for that. Well, thanks, Rick. That's very kind of you. Well, and, and uh, yeah, and, and Paul, when, in our last segment, we talked a little bit about um, about defining what success is. That, to me, is so huge, and it's worth the price of admission for our conversation today because I want to make sure I understand um, where you're going with that. So lay that back out for us, and let's spend some time on that. Okay. I think I think that's very good. You know, as a, as a young man growing up um, and going to school in New York City and growing up in the Bronx, which was mm. uh, <laughs> a kind of an interesting, tough neighborhood. Yeah. That, um, I I find it very interesting today when people start lecturing me and they've lived all their lives in the suburbs about life in the inner city. <laughs> but uh, uh, it it was. Um, you know, very early on, my father gave me this idea of, you know, you better write it, write down what you think success is. Well, I, I did that. And, you know, it was get through high school, you know, be a good athlete, be a good student, you know, get get into college, get through college right. and, and decide what you were going to do. I mean, it was pretty it was pretty simple. Yeah. But here was the first learning lesson when I was in college. I rode crew and um I uh, I ended up being the captain and the stroke of the lightweight varsity team in my uh, junior year, and and it was it was a um, cast of characters is the best way to put it, <laughs> and a whole bunch of individuals, and and we really stunk. <laughs> we were not very good, and and one day we were rowing, we just were awful. And the season hadn't started yet, and we stopped. And I stood up on the gunnels of the of the shell, and I told everybody that we stunk. And the reason we stunk, we're all individuals, and it was really great. And we're lousy, and we we're going to lose every race during the year unless we got together and we did everything together. And and so my focus was we have to do everything together. We have to be a team. And mm. amazingly enough, amazingly enough, that kind of caught fire. Nobody wanted to be lousy. And nobody <laughs> wanted to lose. Right. It wasn't the goal. We, we developed a totally different strategy. We weren't big. We were smaller. So we had to row at a much higher stroke beat at a, at a rate that the Japanese had done in the Olympics back in the 50s and had been very successful. <laughs> but nobody was really into that. Well, we, we started doing that. We trained. And all, miraculously, we started winning all of our races. And strokes from other teams would come up to me and say, did you really row that high? <laughs> and the point was, yes. And what was that about? That was, that was setting a goal. We had to figure out a way to win, so we had to create a different methodology to do it. Mm. We would roll higher than everybody, and so our race structure, our race strategy would be totally different. And we just had to, we just had to stick with it and stay together, and we ended up being, I think, sixth or seventh in the nation, which wasn't too bad wow. for a bunch of ragged. Well, not for guys you were saying you're the worst bunch of guys you've seen, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> Yeah, and and we would have done a little bit better, but we had a mishap in the final in the final 500 meters of the <laughs> national championship. But so the point was, I took that with me, you know, into the Navy, and the, and the point there was, you know, I was a C plus student, maybe B, but I knew that if you had a work ethic and you worked hard and you you paid attention to your people and you trained them, but you also got to know who they were and focused on on how their lives were and at times you took care of them, 
it, there was never any different, never any doubt who the boss was, but you wanted to make sure that they knew um, you were their leader, but you were on their side, and you wanted to make sure that they would be successful, the ship would be successful, and we would we would survive. Yeah. And and so in in my early years, I learned that commanding officers or ships appreciated officers who came in, were diligent, worked hard, had a goal had their people behind them and really achieved really super things. And, and um, that really stayed with me in my first tour of duty. And then I guess the, the baptism of fire was I ended up in Southeast Asia in a job that I volunteered for and didn't know what I was getting into. But um, I spent um, almost three years in Cambodia and Laos and sometimes in Vietnam on the Mekong River. And I had a very interesting task. Um, and the two men who had preceded me in the job had been killed. So, you know, it was kind of a, well, you better get this right or else you're not coming home. <laughs> There's not a lot so, of options. <laughs> uh, so I used the same principle there, working with working with everybody. And, and one of the things was that we were working with the indigenous population. And, and, of course, every time you picked up a newspaper, all the experts back in the States were telling you how bad you were and what you were doing. And yet you were helping farmers increase their crops, their rice crops. You were bringing medical aid into villages that had never seen a doctor in their lives. You were you were fixing all sorts of good things, and you were fighting a war. <laughs> uh, so very complex and diverse time in my life. It it wasn't easy. It was dangerous at times, many times, <laughs> and uh, um, and it left an impression on me that you could achieve very good things for people. Uh, if you were focused, and once again, wrote down what success was. What were you trying to achieve, and how were you trying to do it? Yeah, wow, what a what a difference to, to be able to have that kind of focus. Uh, and to your point, you're doing good while all kinds of bad things are going on around you. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, pay some bills, and we're going to come right back. This is the Michigan Business Network. The Leadership Lowdown is right here, and I'm Vic Versero with Paul Wren. We'll be right back. You can listen to the Michigan Business Network on SoundCloud, iTunes, on the smartphone app, and on its website at www.michiganbusinessnetwork.com. You found the Leadership Lowdown here on the Michigan Business Network. I'm Vic Versero with the amazing Captain Paul Wren, U.S. Navy retired, and he has some amazing stories. He mentioned in the last segment that he was in Laos and Cambodia up the Mekong River um, and, and doing all kinds of different things. Uh, there, there was a story, Paul, you shared with me that I thought was uh, a story of commitment. It had to do with uh, uh, somebody, I think, that was in um, the, is it called the Loatian uh, Army? Is that the way you refer to it? No, it was the Cambodian Navy. Cambodian yeah. Navy. Okay, very good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to tell it in a very abbreviated form, but as you know, the war in Southeast Asia was very complex, and um, it wasn't just in Vietnam. It was across Southeast Asia and Cambodia and Laos. And my, my task at the time was to build a series of bases on the Thai side of the Mekong River, seven of them, to prevent the insurgents from coming across, and, and most probably in the North Vietnamese, coming across Laos and into, into, into uh, Thailand. But that also took me into working with the Cambodian Navy and supporting them and, and helping train them and get them, you know, fight the insurgency. It, it was a very difficult time because they were outnumbered significantly by the Khmer Rouge, and it was, um, 
not exactly a heavily populated country. So here's the story. Um, the fellow that I work with, and I probably should leave his name out of it, but um, he, um, he was a colonel because they used Army terms in the Cambodian Navy. Uh, and for two years, um, we worked in a very difficult environment, a uh, very hostile environment in which we, we did some pretty good stuff as far as um, you know, protecting people and, and doing things. But during that time frame, he and I, I wouldn't say we didn't get along. He just didn't get along with me. <laughs> we, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a sense of, uh, you know, I really appreciate you being here, um, essentially because I was one of the few advisors on the river, et cetera. And so um, at one point, as you pointed out, Vic, he said to me, you know, someday, someday night, which is the term for boss and leader, he said, you'll, you'll leave just like all the others. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll go home, you'll abandon us, and we will be slaughtered here. And um, I, I said to him very steadfastly, I will never do that. I will never leave you. And, and he just, he flat out didn't, didn't necessarily believe me. So uh, at the end of the war, as things were crumbling in Cambodia, not for lack of performance of the people on the ground and the advisory effort we had given, <clears throat> but the simple fact the political background back in the States wasn't very supportive. Right. And quite frankly, uh, the, the Khmer Rouge were just overwhelming the government forces. And uh, I was in Phnom Penh, and I got a call on a, on a portable radio that said, um, you know, they had to pull out of their, their camp up, up north on the river, and they were coming south with their families, and was there anything I could do to help? And, um, you know, I remembered saying steadfastly that I'd stick with them. So I, um, I got some money that I had in a Phnom Penh bank that was mostly Cambodian, and, <laughs> and I called up uh, some, some uh, merchants, better known as pirates or, or smugglers on the river that I knew, <laughs> <Right. laughs> and, and rented a barge from them. And they were both Vietnamese, and they... Um, they brought a barge down to a place called Sock 61, which was west of Phnom Penh. And I told the, the Khmers uh, to meet me there. And and so when I when I got to the place, they came in and um, uh, they were bringing men, women, and children, dogs, cats, ducks, pigs, you name it. It was it was overwhelming <laughs> the number of people. And and when I said you know maybe two three hundred, and the barge was there, and the and I. Had, and I had bought the barge and, and basically told them, the, the, the pirates, whatever you want to call them, this, that these guys had to get out of the South China Sea and then get up into Thailand and get in. There was refugee camps up in uh, up around Samisan in Thailand. And so they all started piling on this barge, and you could hear some small weapons fire in the distance, and it was getting closer, but whatever. And then this, this officer, who had never, <laughs> never been nice to me, had never shown me any respect, even though we'd been in firefights and everything else. He called his, his officers to attention and then saluted me and was kind of shocking. And then he reached over and he hugged me. And, um, you know, he came up to about my chest. Yeah. And, and I, I was really kind of speechless. And he said, you should come with us. And I said, wow, let's see, Vietnamese pirates on a barge coming out of Cambodia <laughs> with Cambodian regulars going to Thailand and a U.S. Navy officer on board. Yeah, that's a good picture. <laughs> Bad no, plan. I can't do that. <laughs> And so I left. I left them, and I said, "Get on the barge and get out of here, and God bless you, and, and go on." And 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 Savan, apparently, as I drove away, there was a, a barrage of small arms fire, probably half an hour after I drove away, in the direction that I'd driven in. And and the wife of this officer got really upset with him, and and apparently, you know, slapped him, which is absolutely unforgivable in in Cambodia. Sure. 
And and they thought that I had been killed. Well, actually, I don't know what, what they heard, but I never saw anything all the way back to Phnom Penh. But there's rest of that story, and I'm gonna, and we're going to leave it as a cliffhanger for this segment. So I'm going to stop <laughs> you right there. We're going to have the rest of the outcome of this story. It's one of my favorite Paul Rin stories, and I'm so glad you're here today, Paul. So glad you tuned in to the Michigan Business Network. This is the Leadership Lowdown. We'll be right back. Growing your business requires you to stay up-to-date in many areas. Foster Swift's Legal Impact Hour on Fridays provides the latest information on legal topics impacting Michigan businesses, from contracts to employment issues to health care to litigation. Listen to attorneys and business owners discuss the practical side of adhering to the laws that impact your day-to-day operations. That's Foster Swift's Legal Impact Hour, Fridays on MichiganBusinessNetwork.com or visit FosterSwift.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Michigan Business Network. Here on the Leadership Lowdown, we've got Paul Wren. He's Captain, U.S. Navy, retired, and he's sharing some stories of his incredible life and some of the things that have happened along the way. And I'm so excited to have a chance to uh, finish this last story because it does have a happy ending, even though it was kind of uh, a heroic uh, departure and and you're leaving that whole area down there. We could go on for um, a long time about this, but basically the people that have now jumped onto this uh, to this barge that's going down the river have left you behind they think that you've been killed because they hear gunfire and that's the end of Paul Wren in their mind <laughs> yeah well it was it was a rather dramatic moment and and uh, when they all left I you know I was I was glad that I had done what I said I would do that I wouldn't abandon them I mean be steadfast stand up for what you believed do the thing, walk the walk. Yeah. And, um, I had no idea what ever happened to them and there was no way to track them uh, and anything else. It was a very chaotic time. And so uh, I got back to Phnom Penh and, and managed to get out of the city and, and got home years later, years, years later after I left the Navy and I was working at Whitney Bradley and Brown, I received a phone call one day at my desk from a fellow by the name of, of, uh, Tom Noon. And he introduced himself as a, a representative of ConocoPhillips in Seattle, Seattle, Washington. He was an attorney for them. And he was coming to Washington, and he wanted to have a conversation with me. And my initial reaction was that he wanted to do, he wanted to do business. And we didn't have any contracts with uh, ConocoPhillips or anything, and certainly not in Seattle, Washington. So, wow, this is a great opportunity. And I, and I, I told him that I would meet him in D.C., and um, I, I came home, and my wife, I told my wife about this great opportunity who, who reminded me once again, as she always does, about the reality <laughs> of the world. And she said, there are a lot of people out there with names like that that would like to do you in. Right, because <laughs> you, know? you, yeah, so, you got a little history there, Paul. <laughs> yeah. But she said, don't take them to any exotic restaurant in downtown Washington in an alleyway that you think is really wonderful, and <laughs> take them to some place that's very visible. So I told him I would meet him at the Army-Navy Club in Farragut Square. And um, at the appointed place and time, uh, he he walked in, and shockingly, I mean, I saw him. It was obviously a, a Cambodian, looked pretty much Southeast Asian, but the Cambodian in appearance, very handsome, very well dressed. And he he, there was three or four of us standing at the top of the stairs waiting for people that were coming in to have lunch. And he didn't hesitate. He saw me, walked right up to me, 
and and introduce himself. And mm. we went inside, and I was kind of surprised that he had done that. And we sat down at the table, and I looked at him, and I said, "Well, you know, well, Tom, you know, it's uh, I'm I'm really I'm really interested in what what you want to talk about and everything." completely thinking about a business deal and nothing else. And I said, have we ever met before? I don't even know why I said that, other yeah. than I was surprised that he came at me. And he looked at me and he said, actually, we have. And I was astonished. And he took a picture out of his pocket and he slid it across the table and he said, do you recognize anybody in this picture? Uh-huh. And I said, well, the guy on the right is Lieutenant Paul X. Rin, you know, counterinsurgency advisor and training advisor on the Mekong River. And the guy next to him is Lex Savan, you know, Colonel... Cambodian Navy. And he looked at me and he said, he's my father. <laughs> and apparently that day on the, on the, on the pier, on the ground before they got on the barge, he was like six years old or something and six or seven, whatever it was, he was very young. And he said, his father was not a nice man. And I said, <laughs> this is shocking. And, and he, uh, he said, I saw my father call everybody to attention and salute you. And then he hugged you. And he said, my father never hugged anybody. So, <laughs> He said, I was really amazed. And then when we got on the barge to go down the river, there was this, what sounded like gunfire in the direction that you had just driven out in. And um, my mother slapped him and said, you know, that guy gave his life for you and uh, for us. And you were never nice to him ever. Mm-hmm. And he said, so for the, for the remainder of his life as a young man and everything, on the anniversary of that day, uh, Savon's wife would lead everybody down to the Watt and Burn incense in my memory, <laughs> which is obviously the reason I was successful. And, Clearly. And, and so what happened was that um, just before he made his phone call, his cousin was in the NROTC program at the University of Washington. And he had required reading. There was a book, No Higher Honor, which is the saving of Samuel B. Roberts. And he brought it home to his to his aunt and said, you know, Aunt Leck, isn't this the guy we've been praying for <laughs> in all these years? And she said, well, yes. And he said, well, he doesn't look very dead to me. <laughs> so, so she tasked him to come to Washington, find me or find me. And he said, finding you is not really hard. Yeah. And I said, yeah, that's great to know. <laughs> and, yeah, right. And uh, so he came and he wanted to just say thank you. And he wanted to tell me that the entire family had eventually gotten out of out of uh, Thailand in the refugee camps and come to the United States, and that his sister was the head of the, the PTA and oh. uh, in Seattle. And you know, he went down the litany of everybody had been successful and had done really great things here in the United States. And he said, you know, simply because you saved our lives. And I, you know, I I don't like even thinking that I was the guy that saved their lives. But and he had the book No Higher Honor with him and he said we'd like you to sign the book and i said what do you want me to say and he said you don't have to say anything you've already done it all for us <laughs> and so yeah that was a very uh i was speechless i couldn't talk i i I, even, I can't blame you talk to my wife about it yeah and and you shared it it's just it's such a such a stunning story to me we can go our entire lives and not make it make uh, uh that kind of impact and here you've got generations truly generations that are thriving here in the united states doing great things here in our country as u.s <laughs> citizens that you did some um, some fantastic work with so paul i'm so grateful uh, for for your service for what you've done the character and honor uh, by which you've held and conducted yourself. We're going to go uh, take a quick break and come right back. This is the Michigan Business Network. You found the Leadership Lowdown. We'll be right back. Michigan, my Michigan. 
Looking for the best value on your office products with the best service in the industry? For over 30 years, DBI customers have enjoyed outstanding customer service with competitive pricing on everything your office needs. From break room to boardroom, DBI can supply all your work essentials. From paper and coffee to storage and seating, DBI, we do office. Everything for the office? One call, one source, one solution. Visit DBI online at dbiyes.com. This is the Leadership Lowdown here on the Michigan Business Network. I'm Vic Vershero with Captain Paul Wren, U.S. Navy retired. And Paul, as we were talking in this last segment, um, we got into uh, uh, some pretty heroic uh, story of, of what clearly impacted your life and the lives of, of hundreds and now thousands of people that were related to that incident. Um, but but your, your naval career went on, and there's some other things that happened along the way. So um, at some point in time, you became appointed to a ship. And uh, tell us about how that felt and what went on. That's nice, and it's more like ordered. Ordered, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I was, uh, I was, I was very surprised. My my career in the Navy had had gone very well after that, and and um, had a, a good number of successes. You know, same same principles: steadfast, taking care of people, driving, be aggressive, be the be the guy. And uh, I was chief staff officer of Desron 36, and we would deploy to the Middle East. And I walked in the captain's cabin. We had a we had a meeting with the commodore every morning, and. He sat there and he said, well, gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to the new commanding officer of FFG 58. And I was sitting in a chair and I looked around like, who? Who is that? And he said, you. <laughs> so I was, I, was, I was very surprised because there was the Navy's newest ship and I was probably the youngest, going to be the youngest commanding officer in the Navy, certainly first in my year group, I think, to go to command because I certainly didn't know anybody else. And, yeah. and so I was, I was going to go to do this. And I was, I was honored to be chosen so early and it was a great challenge, but, um, there's a side story here and I know you want me to tell it. It, it, it always goes down to what's important and what, and talking to your crew, what they think or the people who work for you mm. and finding out what's in their mind and what they're worried about and what they're concerned about. And then dealing with that and dealing it in such a way that you can talk to them and answer their questions. And so, the FFG-7 class was a wonderful class of ships, and certainly combat-proven and everything, but in the early days, it had hull-cracking problems. And that scares sailors, for obvious reasons. Yeah, and, right. It seems so, important. So they asked me very early on, you know, what was the Navy doing? And the Navy was actually doing a lot of things uh, to strengthen the hull in the places where it was cracking, because the ships were all cracking in the same place. So that, But I told them I was going to go down, and I would check with the shipyard and get back you know, to everybody as the crew was forming. And so I went to uh, I went to ask the production people at Bath Ironworks, who were great guys, but their answers weren't really convincing to me that they were really inspecting and doing things the way they should be done, because they were trying to push ships out as fast as they could, because it was a bonus for delivering early. I thought they were really delaying, um, you know, the the X-raying and stuff that they should have been doing right away. So I I told them I was going to go down to the ship. And and they looked at me like, what? Captains don't get out of you know the precom ships and everything. I said, well, no, I, I need to do that because I want to talk to the people that are doing the welding. So at about two o'clock in the morning, on a winter night, either in February or March, whatever it was, and it was snow on the ground, I walked down to the ship with a box of donuts and a and a couple <laughs> of thermoses of coffee, 
Then I walked across a, a wood plank and slid down into Amor, Amor 2, I think it was. And, and there was a couple of welders. And one of them threw up his welding shield and said in very colorful language, who the hell are you? But yeah, Much right. more colorful than that. <laughs> and um, and I, I said, I'm the captain. And he pretty much screamed at me and said, you're not the captain. Navy captains don't come down here at 2 in the morning. You know, who are you? I said, well, I am the captain. And then I brought donuts and coffee for you because I want to talk to you about the job you're doing. And the coffee's pretty damn good, and so are the donuts. So they were very, very reluctant to accept it, but they did. And then we started talking about it, and he said, where are you from? You one of those Annapolis guys? And I said, no, I went to a real school, Marist College. And, and we all laughed. And then they wanted to know where I was from. And I said, well, listen, consider yourself lucky. I'm from New York, and we've been talking now for 15 minutes, and I haven't mugged you or robbed you yet. Because everybody in Maine thinks everybody from New York City is a thug. You know? Right. So, so they really, they really kind of hunkered down and started telling me what they were doing. And, and this fellow's name, I shouldn't, he's, I think he's passed away now. It was H. Harvey Hinkin, Harvey Hinkin. And he, um, he was really, really grassroots, if you know what I mean, sort of guy. <laughs> and, and he couldn't get over that I had come down there and that I actually was the captain. And then for the next several weeks or months, whatever, I would go down to the ship at least one night a week, bring them donuts and coffee. And I knew what the word was getting around because about two weeks into it, I went down and one of the welders picked up his head and said, you bring any chocolate ones tonight? Uh. Oh my God. So, <laughs> so here's the deal. Uh, I, I, I treated them as they were equals. I treated them like they were important. I told them how important they were and, and their performance, their welding was superb. Now, how do I know that? Well, after we got blown up in the Persian Gulf and we were in the Dubai shipyard, the uh, the owner, or not the owner, but the president and the manager, a Dutchman, called me down to uh, to his office and we were having coffee and lunch. And he said, you know, that ship survived an explosion that probably no ship in any other Navy would have survived. He said that the devastation and, and things that happened were amazing. But he said in AMR2, the space you had to save, he said... The welding was remarkable, mm. <laughs> he said, and it was something rather interesting. At a lot of the places where things appeared to be double welded and really were secure and withstood the tremendous shock of that explosion, there was initials kind of welded onto the, onto the cross beams, H-H-H. And I thought, no way. R.V. Hinken. <laughs> and he said, incredibly good welding, but like double Double Dutch to make sure it was done right. Well, and the best so, the best donuts you've ever you've ever invested in, and what a what a yeah. difference how he repaid you. We're going to continue the story. So glad you're here, Paul. So glad you tuned into the Michigan Business Network here on the Leadership Lowdown. We'll be right back. Sinair has an unwavering belief that all people deserve the opportunities provided by living in healthy communities. They've lived that mission for more than 25 years. Through lending, investments, and the creation of homes and jobs, Sinair has made a combined $7 billion impact on the communities they serve. You don't make that kind of broad impact without a skilled, diverse, and highly valued team. That's one of the reasons Sinair has been consistently named a top place to work by Detroit Free Press, a Crane's Detroit Cool Places to Work, and a best nonprofit to work for. Learn more at www.sinair.com. Michigan, Michigan. 
This is the Michigan Business Network. We're on the Leadership Lowdown with Paul Wren. He's Captain Paul Wren, U.S. Navy retired. And, of course, uh, in the last segment, we talked about uh, what an investment a little bit of coffee and donuts goes uh, to people that are building your ship and spending time with them. I think that's a beautiful lesson for our leaders that have tuned in today to talk about um, the power of the people that you're that you're working with. And sometimes our brands and all of our other things that are out there are riding on our frontline workers who oftentimes are the least paid and least appreciated. So, Paul, it was a valuable lesson right there that you shared with us. But I have to tell you, you you were um, part of the Samuel B. Roberts uh, ship. It was something that's studied today because that ship uh, was uh, had a bad day one day. And uh, thanks to the welds and to your crew, you were able to pull through. Can you take us back to that moment and some of the teachable things that happened there? Yeah, I, I think... I think one of the things that was that we stressed on board, same thing, you know, what's, what's your level of success? And for us, it was to be only the best. And Roberts won the Battle League, got nominated for the Battenberg Cup, deployed a year early, and you, you name it, we, we broke a record. And, and it was because I thought that I was totally invested in the crew. And I think after a while, I got totally invested in me for, you know, for, for, for wild reasons at times. But anyway, they... The really important thing was to train everybody and to make sure they understand what, what success was and what we were trying to be, what our goal was. And also to take a look at the situation about if we get in a fight, we're a frigate, short-range weapons, you know, we're, we're probably going to get hit. So we have to be able to fight through that. And we trained intensely to do that. And, and in doing that, empowering your people, you know, going down and making sure they understand what you're doing, promoting younger people um, into positions of responsibility and leadership. In other words, pushing accountability down. It's buy-in, mm, whether it's yep. in the business world or on a ship. And so uh, April 15th, 1988, after, after 15 successful or 14 successful convoys, um, the Iranians dumped a tactical minefield in front of us. And, uh, um, you know, intelligence confirmed that it was meant to sink us. We sailed into the minefield and trying to back away after we saw a few of them. We hit a mine and it blew a 30-foot hole in us, um, put 2,000 tons of water in our 4,000-ton ship right away. <laughs> but the performance of the crew that night was absolutely superb in every respect, across the board, courageous, skillful, professional, never flinching. On a, on a couple of occasions, I looked my sailors right in the eye and said, if you, if you don't succeed in doing this, we're going down, but you will die here. And, and when you tell a human being that or a man that in a crisis situation and he looks at you and he doesn't even flinch, I mean, you gain a lot of strength from that. <laughs> you, you realize these guys are into it and committed. And so the power of dealing with your people and empowering them and training them to, to be accountable and take ownership, in, whether it's business or the, or the Navy, is, is incredible. How important was that? Well, I could tell you a million stories about that during that night, but we don't have time for that. I will just tell you that I speak at MIT every year, and um, I've been doing it for 12 years, and the marine engineering curriculum studies ships and ships that get damaged and, and how bad, you know, how fast they sink and why they sink. Their estimate after modeling Roberts all over those 12 years is that we should have sunk in an hour and 10 minutes. Mm. And, and the reality was we didn't sink. We saved the ship, and we got out of the minefield ourselves, and, and we didn't have any help. And so that was the measure of the performance of the crew, the courage and the bravery, but also the intellect and the professionalism they had that was developed through a training program that we pointed out what success was going to be 
to be only the best and to make everybody accountable for what they were supposed to do, which they then held everybody else accountable. Mm. That it proved to be an incredibly successful, successful journey. Well, and I think that's the lesson that I take with that, and I hope that imparts to everybody who's listening. Oh, just it's so it's such good stuff, Paul. And I have to tell you that as I think about um, uh, the stories you've regaled me with and the, and the audience today, you've only scratched the tip of the iceberg. I happen to know the stories you've told me from gunfights to. Uh, um, uh, pistol fights that happened uh, within you know uh, 15 feet away from each other, um, to uh, 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 riding in planes that never flew again, um, all, all of these things leading up to the fact that I think you were spared um, for a reason, and I think you were spared for that moment uh, on the Samuel B. Roberts when you led those soldiers and those uh, military people and did what you did. And so I, I'm just so grateful for your service and that you were spared along the way. Now, Paul, um, look, I'm out, I'm out of time. I wish we had six days to unpack the rest of your life. Um, can you tell me, <laughs> for those people that are smart enough to to uh, buy your book or, or uh, hire you as a speaker, how do they get a hold of you, Paul? Well, uh, the book is No Ironic by Brad Pennison, and it's online on Amazon, and it's also a Naval Institute Press printed it. Uh, as far as getting in touch with me, just go to rinspeaks.com, and my website will come up, uh, and it, it gives you examples of the people I've spoken to, uh, gives you a good breakdown of uh, you know the type of presentations I give, and um, there's a lot of humor and laughter in there, and gives you a little bit of a breakdown on me, and and uh, gives you a phone number and an email that you can contact me, and that would be great. Yeah. And, uh, well, we don't. One of my one of my favorite giggly moments in, in your presentation was when one of your sailors, who you actually had three strikes, you're out, but you held on to him. You didn't let him go. He was the one. He was down in the engine room, and he was and on a on a on a suggestion box. He suggested that we put a um, a porthole into the uh, engine room, which of course is below the water, and so everybody had a good laugh at that. But when you guys uh, got blown into smithereens, he played a vital role in saving the the Samuel B. Roberts. His personal heroism uh, is noteworthy, but I, I remember when it was all said and done and everybody was safe, um, he walked by you and he said, sir, I'd like to thank you for the for the portal that you put in the side of the boat yeah. as in the 30-foot yeah. blast that's to the side. Right. Be, right. it, it exceeded be, expectations. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what he said in the suggestion box. He said, with regard to my request for a porthole in the main engineering space, you have exceeded why." <laughs> You have exceeded my wildest dreams of my wildest well, expectations. Well, Paul, you, you've so exceeded our expectations today. Thank you, sir. You've been great. <laughs> You're quite welcome, Vic, and thank you very much for having me, and uh, and have a, uh, have a great day. You and, bet. And uh, continue with great success. You're a great leader. Take care. Thanks so much, Paul. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Michigan Business Network. This is the Leadership Lowdown. Can't wait to talk to you next time. Michigan.